When you think about the church, what comes to mind? Maybe it's the, uh, the times that we meet. You think of Sundays, maybe you think of Wednesdays or whatever else. Maybe it's the things that we do. You think of singing, prayer, gathering, preaching, eating, I guess we do that. Um, when you look at other Christians or consider other believers, what do you see? How do you view other Christians? Perhaps you view other believers as your friends that you share a common interest with, like someone you share a hobby with. So you maybe have your gym friends, you have your work friends, you have your sports friends, your hobby friends, and then you also have your church friends. I think that can be a common view, that sort of where we uh, separate, you know, the different spheres of our lives, and so our church friends then become just that. They're another group that we've added on to our lives, and they are our church friends, just like we have other types of friends. Uh, but of course, the Bible's picture of the church is so much deeper and so much more beautiful and so much more important and richer than this view. Uh, among the analogies and the word pictures that are used for the church, there's lots, and they're very good ones and important ones. Um, but the Bible depicts the church as a family. So that language of brothers and sisters uh, depicts us as a family, that God is our Father, we are brothers and sisters, Jesus himself is referred to as our elder brother. Another one Paul likes to use is the body, that we are one body. We are all individuals that make up different parts of the body with Christ himself being the head. And each member of the body, it says, uh, we read this, Ephesians 4, but uh, elsewhere as well, but in Ephesians 4, we, we read that every, every part of the body, every member has a particular function uh, that contributes towards building up the body, that contributes towards bringing about growth in the church. Just as every aspect of a printer's body uh, is working together, working as one to get that sprinter across the finish line, so too the members of the church work in harmony to build ourselves up into mature Christ-likeness. And Christ has given, we read this again, Ephesians 4, Christ has given every member of the body gifts, certain gifts, to play a role in the church's life. They contribute in bringing about the maturity of the body. That help one another to reach that finish line. And so one of the obvious implications of this, I think, I hope it's obvious, one of the clear implications of this is that we as a church, as individual Christians, we need one another. We need each other. That other believers, therefore, are so much more than just another set of friends. There's nothing like the, nothing else out there like the church. As we come to Luke 17 today, and I invite you to turn there now, uh, we're going to see this very thing. Jesus' exhortations here to disciples about temptation, about sin, about forgiveness, reveal to us that the church is to be committed to one another's progress in the faith. Uh, the old writers, perhaps if you've, you've seen this, uh, they spoke of it as advancement in the school of Christ. Puritans and others wrote that way. Uh, that's what we're talking about. We're that we together are to be concerned about one another's progress in Christ-likeness. I would suggest that much of what we read today simply cannot be obeyed uh, if we are not in a church and, and, and with other believers and known by other believers and knowing others as well. So as individuals that make up the church, it ought to be our concern that those next to us, those in this room today, those who cannot be here today, that we are all progressing in the faith, that we are not falling into sin. Again, the church is marching forward, it's growing up into maturity, we are doing this together, we are carrying each other along in this, exercising our gifts, helping one another along. So church is, it's not merely that we have a safe place here where we can share our convictions with one another and not be savaged by the world. It is that. We can do that here. It's good to have that place. Uh, this is good. But Jesus calls us to much more here. He calls us to being committed to one another's progress in the faith. And so the outline for today 
uh, is this. Being committed to one another's progress in the faith means we are first guarded against leading others into sin. Second, gently rebuking those caught in sin. And third, graciously forgiving those repentant about their sin. So committed to one another's progress in the faith means we're guarded against leading others into sin, gently rebuking those caught in sin, and graciously forgiving those who are repentant about their sin. So let's read Luke 17. We're just going to cover the first four verses today. And Jesus said to his disciples, Luke writes, Temptations to sin are sure to come. But woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So, first off, being committed to one another's progress in the faith means that we are guarded against leading others into sin. We see this in the first three verses, to the beginning of verse three at least. And in these verses, Jesus uses some, I would suggest, attention-grabbing language, which highlights the importance of being guarded against sin, especially the aspect of, of causing others to sin. So at the beginning of verse 1, we see that he addresses this to his disciples. He's speaking to those who are his followers, who believe in him. And he's talking about uh, temptation aimed at other believers. Uh, End of verse 2, he says, talking about these little ones. That's talking about believers. So he's addressing this to believers. He's talking about temptation that would come to other believers. And interestingly, he begins this warning by saying, by telling us that temptations to sin are sure to come. They're sure to come. They're going to come. I think that's an interesting way to start this. It is simply impossible to live in a fallen world in which we are told in Scripture Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour. It is simply impossible to live in such a world and not face temptation. Moreover, we add to that the fact that we possess a fallen nature, and even if we are trusting in the Lord Jesus, we've been born again, we've been renewed, we've been made a new creation, we have uh, new desires within our heart, Uh, the Bible tells us we still have remnants of that old man. We still have what Paul calls the flesh that we battle. And John Owen, uh, he, he talks about that aspect of us as a traitor within our own hearts that's Uh, looking to rise up with, you know, as temptation from the world comes, there's that part of us that's ready to rise up, that old man, and join forces with the world around us and and crush us under sin. So temptation in such a world is simply a sure thing. It's a sure bet. Jesus tells us as much right here. Uh, We might be tempted to complain about this reality of life, um, but it's going to happen. And so better to gird ourselves and prepare for this rather than to wring our hands over the reality of the world that we live in. It's coming. Temptation will come. It's not easy, but we're to prepare ourselves for this. They're sure to come. Now, if you'll notice, uh, if you're looking at an ESV, uh, it says temptations to sin are sure to come. And you'll notice a footnote there. And uh, it tells us that the Greek word there means stumbling blocks. He's saying stumbling blocks are sure to come. So temptation is pictured here as an object that's placed in our path, that's placed in our way that we might trip over or a snare that we might be snagged by and fall into. It's having an impediment placed in our way that would keep us from progressing faithfully in our faith, our trust, and our obedience to the Lord Jesus. Calvin says it is to be drawn aside from the right course or to be held back in it. So it is that which threatens to knock us off the right path or to hold us back, to beset us in our progress in the faith. And so it refers to quite a serious reality. We we might think of just as we walk and we kind of trip over something we didn't see and we stumble a bit, but we regain our footing and all's fine. Uh, it's, It's not something small like that. It's something that if unchecked 
leads to the ruin of the person who's caught in it, can lead to the ruin of the person ensnared in it. Uh, consider Revelation 2, Revelation 2.14. Jesus tells this to the church in Pergamum there. He says, you have some there, so he's rebuking the church, you have some there who, would, who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Barak to put a stumbling block before the people of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So that's referring to uh, a story from Numbers 25. Uh, and there, the people of Israel were seduced by these women of Midian, and they committed these acts of immorality. They worshipped Baal, or Baal, the false god Baal, at a place called Peor. And in Numbers 31, 16, we're told explicitly that it was this fellow Balaam who put Barak up to this, who, who incited the people this way. He said, you, you want to get the people of Israel? Here's what you do. And you put this stumbling block in their way. You get these women to draw them in this way and commit this sin. And it was a serious thing. And many did stumble in this way and were ensnared and fell. And in fact, God sent a judgment upon the people of Israel. We're told he sent a plague to them and 24,000 died. So this stumbling block that was placed there was a, obviously a very serious matter. So Balaam laid a stumbling block at the feet of the people of Israel. Many stumbled over it. Another example of this, uh, another place where this word is used, an interesting example is from Matthew 16, verse 23. You remember, Jesus has, uh, he, he, he said that he must go to Jerusalem and he must die. He, he's predicting his passion and he's going to rise again. And Peter does not like this, and he rebukes the Lord and says, It'll never be. May it not be. And you remember the Lord's response. He says, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. You are a stumbling block to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You are a stumbling block to me. If you think about it and consider it, if Jesus had agreed with what Peter said, had, say, gone along with that and tried, you know, avo tried to avoid the cross in some way, he obviously would have been off course. He would have been not following the plan that the Father had laid out for him. He would not have been in obedience. Obviously, had such a thing occurred, there would be no salvation. Clearly, as he says to Peter, you do not have the things of God in mind. That's clearly the case. Clearly, this is a serious uh, stumbling block laid before Jesus. Of course, he did not trip over it. But it is said to be a stumbling block, and so there's this, this strong rebuke. <clears throat> Romans 16, 17, one other example will give. Paul there warns the church, he says, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles. That is stumbling blocks. Watch out for those who cause divisions and stumbling blocks, contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ and he says, but by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Such temptation can, and obviously do come, from outside the church. Balaam was outside of the covenant people of Israel. Barak was outside of them. These Midianite women were outside of them. But they laid this at their feet, and they stumbled and tripped right over it. But also, very clearly, it can be something that happens within the church. It makes its way within the church. Clearly, that's the case in Revelation 2. Uh, Jesus is speaking those words to the church at Pergamum. Revel, uh, Romans 16 also addressed to the church to beware of these people who would place these stumbling blocks before them. And these stumbling blocks, we're told, are sure to come, Jesus says. They're going to happen. In fact, in, in Greek, it's, it's worded, I think, even more strongly in kind of a negative way or a reversed way. It says it is impossible for stumbling blocks not to come. They're gonna it's impossible for this not to happen. And so we ought to be prepared for this. Friend, life as a, as a Christian is not simply one of just rest and ease. We want that. It's very appealing to us to have that, but that's not what it is. We fight sin daily. These temptations are sure to come. It's necessary, Jesus says. It's impossible not for that not to happen in this world. And yet, even as this is a necessary thing, this does not mean we just, well, it's no big deal then, you know, whether it comes from somebody else or from me or some whoever it might be, it's no big deal. Clearly, that's not the case. 
As Jesus goes on to say in verse 1, but woe to the one through whom they come. They're coming, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than he should cause one of these little ones to sin or to stumble. Same word. So temptation is a part of life, but that does not mean it's okay. It does not mean it's not a big deal. No, Jesus pronounces a curse, a woe upon those through whom it comes. The one who places that stumbling block in another's path. In fact, the, the, what he says there in verse 2, I don't know that that needs a ton of explanation. I think it's fairly clear what's going on there. To have this large grinding stone hung around your neck and cast overboard, we know how that ends. That person's not coming up. He says, better to meet a gruesome death in such a way in the sea than to cause a believer to stumble, to be impeded, to be thrown off their course. And so Jesus adds the words at the beginning of verse 3, pay attention to yourselves. This is at the start of verse 3, uh, but it's widely agreed that this warning uh, fits best with what he has just said in verses 1 and 2. That it's really Jesus' conclusion to this matter of stumbling blocks. So what do we do? Well, he says, pay attention, beware, be careful. To what? To yourselves. He's saying, be on guard, be in a state of alert, watch your hearts. Watch your life. It seems clear to me there'd be two main reasons to do this, he says. One would be the stumbling blocks are sure to be laid, and so be careful that you don't stumble over them. Watch yourselves. Be careful you don't trip over them. They're coming. Be careful. Watch yourselves. Don't fall. And then the second, obviously, would be that we would be careful. We would watch ourselves so that we are careful that we are not the ones laying such traps before other people. Heeding the word, woe to the one through whom they come. And so the attitude of the disciple then is to be on guard against leading others into sin. Now it's true that God is he's sovereign to save people. He is sovereign to keep people to the end. That is true, but it's important also for us to understand that God uses means to accomplish His purposes in His sovereignty. So even if you think of the fact that God sovereignly saves somebody, but we know that He uses means to accomplish that. He uses the preaching of the gospel, right? The gospel, Romans 1.16, is the power of God unto salvation. So yes, God's sovereign, but we know that does not mean we just sit back and say, well, just let him go save. He tells us to go, and he says the very means by which he accomplishes redemption is the preaching of the gospel, is the preaching of Christ. And so God also is sovereign to save, and he's sovereign to keep us, but he also uses means along the way. And one of those means that he uses to keep us and to build us up in the faith is the church, is one another. Working together, exercising our gifts, helping each other battle sin, and to make it to the end. And so we're, we're guarding against sin in this way. We're paying attention to ourselves so that we would not be a hindrance to others. Because we want one another to be built up, not to be torn down or to be cast off course in any way. That nobody would be entangled. That's our desire. Again, Calvin says in this text, whoever then desires to escape that fearful punishment which Christ denounces, in verse 2, let him stretch out his hand to the little ones who are despised by the world and let him kindly assist them in keeping the path of duty. So not putting up stumbling blocks, but quite the opposite. We were seeking to help one another be built up in the faith and to progress in the faith. And so the severity of Christ's warning in verse 2 should obviously move us to carefulness. So just as you think of his statements about if your hand causes you to sin, chop it off. That grabs our attention. That, that helps us understand the seriousness of sin. So too this this, what he says here in verse 2, does the same. Helps us understand the, the seriousness of sin and what we're talking about, what he's talking about here. Now, I know that as I 
as we look at this, as I say these things and read these things, there are people here, there are people listening uh, who are mortified by these words, who hear these things and you just think, you, you think, if, if anyone really knew me, if, if anyone gets too close to me, they would surely fall. They would surely stumble when they see my life because I'm just, I know that I'm a sinful person. And I know that they would see that quickly. This, I would not be a good example to them. I, I, I am scared of that thought even. I, I know we read this and there are some who, who think that way automatically. And I would just say on the one hand, that's true for all of us. Uh, you're not the only one who's sinful. But I, just a couple things I would suggest. One, remember Peter. Right? Jesus said, Jesus called him Satan. And then he, he said, you're putting a stumbling block before me. And then, but we know, we know that Peter was a repentant man, was he not? And was, was he not restored by the Lord Jesus himself even? John, the end of the Gospel of John lays that out beautifully for us. He was fully restored for not just this, but also his denial of Christ. And does that mean that he went on to just live a perfect life where he never sinned and he never, ever did anything wrong after that? We know for a fact that's not true because Paul himself said he had to publicly rebuke Peter. Right? Galatians 2, he talks about that. And so even in there, we'd say Peter was guilty in that moment. He was causing, he was sinning, and he was leading others astray in that moment. Now again, Paul doesn't make it explicit there, but we would presume that Peter was repentant over that as well. And so I just say, if you, if you know that you are a sinner... You know that you are not, you're not excusing it in any way, and that makes you nervous as you think about others getting to know you or that you might accidentally lead somebody astray. I would just say to you, that's exactly the attitude that you're supposed to have. You're supposed to understand the seriousness of this matter, and you're supposed to understand the weight of it. That's actually, I think, what Jesus wants us to have here, so that's good. But I would just say again to remember that you are not saved and justified before God by your perfect ability to never sin or never ever cause anybody in any way to think wrongly or to do something that might be wrong or sinful. Rather, we look to Christ. We look to Him. We look to His righteousness alone. That's what we need. That's what we need. We need the righteousness of Christ credited to our account. We need the righteousness of the one who was tempted over and over again, who had many a snare laid at his feet, and yet never ever gave in. And so, let us make it our mission then, not to lay impediments at one another's feet, but to build one another up and to carry each other along in the faith, walking in the path of righteousness, holding to the good, true doctrine of the Word of God. So secondly, being committed to one another's progress in the faith means gently rebuking those caught in sin. This might be one of the more uncomfortable aspects of church life. This can easily be done very poorly, done perhaps in arrogance or pride or out of anger. This can be done that way. But even when it's done well, with the right motives, uh, motives can very easily be misunderstood. Moreover, we all have sin, and so it's easy to think, who am I to bring this up or say anything, to you know, bring any sort of correction, because I'm bad too, I, I'm not, you know, so we, the whole thing then can just be easily shelved, where we don't rebuke anybody. But I would suggest we, we do that to our harm. Jesus says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. Again, this use of family language, familial language. Christians are brothers and sisters. He's talking about another believer who sins. We're all part of God's family if we are in Christ. God is our Father. And he says, Jesus says, we're to rebuke a brother who sins. Now, some think it's, well, it's possible that Jesus is talking specifically if somebody, about someone who sins against us here. It's clear in verse 4, he's going to say that, if someone sins against you seven times. Um, but for sure we would say this would be a sin that is known to us. You know, it was either committed against us, or we watched this thing happen or unfold. We know about this. Uh, so he's not talking about, you know, 
witch hunting or get, trying to dig into everyone's lives and try to figure out where they might have stepped off so we can hammer them with it. That's not the case. This is a, a known sin. This is a clear sin. It's against us. We watched it happen, whatever it might be. And he says, uh, and, and it's clearly something that's not been repented of, as we'll see in a moment. And he says to rebuke the brother who sins. To do this, to rebuke or to reprove someone, is to reprimand and correct them. This reveals, it implies a, a seriousness and a sobriety to what's happening. Right? Sin is not a game. The word rebuke also does have a, a, a sharpness to it, a sense of sharpness. It means calling an act what it is. It's sin. And it's calling somebody to repent of that sin. Now, here Jesus does not use any modifiers to tell us how to do this. He just says do it. He just says rebuke. He doesn't say exactly how we should do it. But I think it's clearly implied that we should do this out of concern for that brother, concern for that sister, that other believer. Uh, that we don't want them to stumble over temptation. We don't want them to regress in the faith or to be knocked off course or to be stuck in this sin in any way. We understand that any sin, all sin, is not good for us. However little, whatever it might be, if it's sin, it's not good. It never benefits us. And so we don't want one another, people we love and care for, to be in this, to be stuck in this. We don't want someone to be given over to sin. And so we go to them and we rebuke them for this. And so it's for their good. And of course, we do have other passages in the Bible that tell us the spirit in which we ought to do this kind of thing. Galatians 6.1 tells us that we're to correct somebody who's caught in transgression, and we're to do that in a spirit of gentleness. Again, this is out of love. This is out of gentleness. It's calling it what it is, but it is to be done with gentleness. And Galatians 6 also says, as we do that, to keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So we, we know, we, we go to that person with gentleness, out of love for them, desiring their good, and also we're told to keep watch on ourselves lest we be tempted, to, that we, we don't go into this ourselves angry, being tempted and giving into the sin of anger or, uh, you know, um, pride or whatever other sin might be lurking as we go to talk to somebody. So it's, it's to be done gently, it's to be done with a careful eye on our own life. Maybe you think of... Um, Back in Luke 6, where, uh, it, where um, Jesus is giving instructions about judgment and judging others. And he, and he says in there uh, you know, that we are to deal with the log in our own eye before we deal with the speck in a brother's eye. And, and again, if you remember back to that, Luke 6.42, he's not saying uh, don't ever address a sin in somebody else's life because you have a log in your own eye. He's telling you to address the log in your eye and then... You can see clearly to take out the speck in your brother's eye. And so he's, he's telling us how to do this, to not, to not do this hypocritically. We go understanding we have a log in our eye. We're dealing with that. We have much sin of our own. The sin that I know of in my own life is far greater than whatever I've seen you just commit. And I'm trying to deal with that and I'm being honest about that. And yet out of love for you, I still want to bring this to your attention and call you to repent of this sin. I think we know that rebuke and rebuke for sin is, is right, is, is good, is loving. We do this to our children. They run towards danger, something bad, and we tell them to stop it. <laughs> That's a rebuke. We tell them to stop. They were headed into a life of sin or towards some, danger, some other danger, the street, whatever it is. We rebuke that action. And so it is with, with one another. Sin is never to one's benefit. Further, if it's really our desire to be like Christ, then not only must we engage in the act of rebuking a brother or sister who's in sin, but we ourselves must welcome this kind of thing being done to us when we're on the receiving end. Consider what God says about rebuke elsewhere in his word. Psalm 145.5, David writes this, let, him, let a righteous man strike me, it is a kindness. 
Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Notice that David, who's been rebuked here, he's not whining about this. He's not whining about the tone or the way in which this happened. Think of the way Nathan came to him after he'd sinned with Bathsheba. He's not complaining that he kind of tricked me and he kind of walked me into a corner there. He's not whining about this. He's saying, if that man is righteously motivated, let him hit me if that's what it takes. Let him strike me. It's a kindness to me if he's a righteous man and he's after my good. If he hits me, it's okay and it's good. It's a kindness to me. Now, that's not an excuse for us to hit people. We know it should be done gently. But when we are on the receiving end of a rebuke, our first step, the first thing we should do is deal with the substance of the rebuke. Is what this brother or sister is saying to me, is it true? Am I in error in this matter? Well, he could have said it nicer. Well, that's, maybe that's true. That might be true. But David says, let him hit me if he's righteously motivated. So I would suggest that one for us, if someone comes to us with a concern or rebuke, is to hear it and to consider it. Proverbs 13.1 A wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. It's the fool. It's the fool who will not listen to rebuke. How dare you even think you could say this to me? That's the fool speaking. The scoffer, the mocker of God is the one who does not listen to rebuke. Proverbs 17.10, a rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. You can smack a fool around a hundred times and he'll eventually learn some sort of a lesson. But if you just rebuke a man of understanding with words, it'll serve a much deeper effect than smacking somebody else a hundred times who's a fool. They'll get a lesson, but not nearly as deep of a lesson as a man of understanding who is rebuked. So love for one another, a desire to see each other progress in the faith involves this type of action, rebuke. And so this causes us, I think, to ask two questions of ourselves. The first is, am I prepared to receive a rebuke? Will I see that rebuke? Will I, do I understand? Will I receive the fact that rebuke is for my good when I sin? Will I see that it is the fool who refuses to listen to rebuke? Will I set my pride aside to hear a brother or sister? Will I commit to thinking the best of anyone who comes to me with a concern? So am I prepared to receive a rebuke? Second question we need to ask ourselves, am I prepared to rebuke my brothers and sisters when necessary? Will I overcome the awkwardness of that? Will I see that it is loving? Will I obey the Lord Jesus in this manner? Will I commit to doing this with love? Will I also deal with my own sin honestly before the Lord? Just a side note. We're talking about sin here that's known sin. Uh, sometimes things are not that clear. Something happens we see an issue or a concern in somebody. And if it's not obviously sin, I, don't go in, you know, full rebuke mode. Uh, you go in and you ask. You can ask questions. You said this, and I received it this way. Is this what you meant? You know, find out. Is, was this sin or not? Or am I misunderstanding? Perhaps you see something, and that's, I'm not sure what motivates them in this or if there's a problem here. You can ask. You can go ask, I would say, and just say, I, I noticed this. Here's my concern. Is this true? Is this valid or am I off? And, and, and that person might say to you, um, no, I, I, I don't think that's a problem. Here's, here's what's going on. Here's what, and you might say, okay, I'm, you know, I, I, I'm wrong. Thank you. Or that person might say, you know, you're right. I have been struggling with this. Or I, I did speak out of turn. Or I was angry at you when I said that thing. So I think we just, you know, it, it, we need to just... Believe the best about one another. 
and be prepared to have those kinds of conversations and not be presumptuous just because we see something we don't necessarily like, that we have all the information. But we need to be prepared to rebuke. We need to be prepared to, to talk about these things. Why? Because we love one another. We want to build each other up and bring each other along. And so a healthy church will not overlook this aspect of church life or friendship. Though it's easy to do this and though our flesh will scream for the easy way out on these matters. We're to gently rebuke those caught in sin. But thirdly, being committed to one another's progress in the faith means graciously forgiving those who repent of their sin. So Jesus doesn't just say rebuke him and then leave it or move on. He says in verse 3 there, if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. If he repents, forgive him. Rebuking is not about holding something over another person, over our brother and sister. The hoped for end is repentance. And when that occurs, we forgive. That means we pardon that person, we let it go, it's gone. The word used here for forgive means just that, to send it away. The issue's over, the debt is gone, both sides move on. I don't hold this over you. To repent is to acknowledge one's actions, to be sin, to confess it as such. If it's against somebody, to that person, confessing it to the Lord, obviously, as well. And it's a commitment, a turning from it, a commitment not to do that again. 2 Corinthians 7, 10 and 11 talks about a godly remorse, a godly grief that accompanies repentance. And yet we see that repentance does not mean that we necessarily will never commit that sin ever again. Verse 4, And if he sins against you seven times in the day, and turns to you seven times, saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So this is clearly now sin that's directed against you. And Jesus says if this act occurs seven times in a day, followed by repentance... You must forgive. This is what he tells us. Now we might wonder what kind of a repentance this is, if this is seven times you've had to do this in a day. Um, if that seems odd to you, I'm not sure... I, well, I'm not sure you've... Maybe you haven't spent a lot of time with other human beings, but uh, to sin seven times in a day and have to repent of it, on one hand, doesn't strike me as a, a lot. <laughs> Uh, but nevertheless, if somebody does something seven times, maybe it's the same thing. Jesus is saying here, if they repent of that, forgive them. The emphasis is on the Christian duty to forgive. As Christ's followers, when sin against us is repented of, Christ does not permit us to hold that over their heads. And to use that against them in any way. Forgive them, he says. Well, again, this passage is talking about what happens when a person is repentant of their sin. Uh, if they're not repentant of their sin, what do we do? Well, Matthew 18 addresses that issue. Tells us that, Matthew 18, 15 and following. Jesus shows us there what to do. If this does not go well, the person does not repent. He says to take one or two other brothers and sisters along with you. To address the issue. But here, here the emphasis is on the duty of the Christian who's been offended when that person then repents who did the offending, on the duty of the offended person to forgive. Some people might wonder how this can be. How can we realistically do this? If somebody sins against us and they do this repeatedly, and it's hurtful. And this can be in very hurtful ways. And we get upset about this. And it's not okay. It's not good that they've sinned against us. How, how, how might we do this? Have this attitude? Well, all Christians are merely servants of the Lord who've been forgiven unbelievably great debts ourselves. So though... You might sin against me seven times in a day or a hundred times in a day. 
What debt is that compared to the debt that I have built up against God Almighty? There is simply no comparison between the two. The, the debt that I have owed for my sin against a holy God is far greater than anything, anything you can do to me. Any sin you could commit against me. The worst thing you could do to me is nothing compared to the debt I have had before God. And if I've been forgiven that debt by Almighty God, then surely I can release you from some much more minor offense that you've committed against me, even if in the eyes of the world and the eyes of man it is deemed a great offense. Also in Matthew 18, Jesus there tells a parable to this effect. He tells a parable about this wicked servant who was pardoned such a massive debt, and then he goes home and he turns to his own servant who owes him by comparison, a very small debt, and will not forgive him, though that, that servant pleads with him for mercy. He has him thrown in jail till he can pay off every last cent. And Jesus calls this person wicked. And he says this person clearly does not understand the gospel, does not understand what it is they've been forgiven. They have no concept of this. They're wicked and will be under judgment, a person who carries such an attitude. So I think if we understand the gospel, we understand the, the, the depths of our own depravity and sin, the slate that was so gross but has been wiped clean by God, then, then we can understand that this is, is, is absolutely the appropriate response for us to one another. If a brother sins against us, he's rebuked, repents, we just forgive him or her. Moreover, if this is my brother or sister in Christ... Their debts have been paid for at the cross, just as mine have. So again, who am I to say, you're not forgiven? Who am I to hold that over your head? Again, if the Lord of glory has dismissed it and says, not guilty, and you're justified before him because Christ himself has paid the penalty for your sin, then who are we to, to not release that person from their debt, to hold it against them, to not forgive them? Shall we not rather quickly and joyfully dismiss the offense? The purpose of rebuke is not about you or me having the satisfaction of being apologized to. That's not really primarily what this is about at all. It's about having that person avoid stumbling blocks. Having that person avoid being set back, walking in sin. It's a dangerous line to just flirt with sin and be unrepentant about it. And we need one another to help each other see our blind spots and to rebuke one another in love that we might progress onward together, unified as the body of Christ. If you just think about a time, I hope you've had this experience and can think of one very clearly, but a time where you went to somebody to ask for forgiveness and, and you know in that moment you had nothing to plead, you had no excuse, you just simply had sinned. And you're just asking for forgiveness. And this person, you know, they have a right to be angry in a human sense, for sure. You've done them wrong. And you ask them forgiveness, and they just grant it to you. Can you think of a time you've had that? I hope you can. And what a wonderful, freeing thing that is to have somebody just forgive you. Say, in Christ, it's forgiven. It's such a beautiful thing. It's a thing the world knows nothing about. Are you eager to release people from any guilt or weight when they confess their sin to you? Or do you enjoy having something against them, holding it over them? As one writer says, expel the venom of hatred and do not harbor deceit in your heart. If anyone confesses and repents, forgive him. This is what Christ tells you to do. You must forgive him, he says. And so may we be those who do this joyfully and who do this quickly. Being a church is obviously so much more than simply being just another group of friends, just another group of acquaintances. It's unlike anything else. No one else out there has this interest in you. 
The 17th century Puritans, their grasp of theology and life was shaped by what J.I. Packer calls a pilgrim mentality. Uh, this is most famously expressed in John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress. I know many of you have read that book. The whole idea is that this world is not our home. That we belong to a heavenly kingdom and we are on a pilgrimage there. We are on this trek there. But it is not a journey that we are meant to take alone. We don't go this by ourselves. For the journey God has given us, the church, he's given us one another. And to his church, he's given us gifts, to each member of that church, gifts that the rest of the church needs on this journey. And he's given to his church other gifts, his spirit, his word, the ordinances, the Lord's Supper, baptism. Of this passage in Luke 17, Daryl Bach in his commentary says, there are two fundamental relational commitments that undergird what Jesus is saying here. The first is that disciples share in each other's commitment to pursue righteousness. I think that's clear in this passage. In the call to rebuke and forgive, we do this because we, are, we, we want one another to be pure, to be undefiled by sin, to be pursuing Christ's likeness. We also see this in the call to guard ourselves against sin and against causing others to sin. Why? I don't, we want righteousness. We don't want to be throwing anything in the way of that. The second fundamental relational commitment is that disciples are not to pursue their spirituality in isolation from one another. For Jesus, faith is not merely a private affair, but something that the community, that is the church, pursues together. So again, I think this is quite clear here. And I think we need to understand that we live in a time when this is so bizarre. This is so strange. We are, it's, we are such an individualistic age, and we need to know that that's the air we breathe. That this is me. I mean, we see this all the time. Religion, what I believe, it's my own thing. And even professing Christians believe this. It's my own private thing. You stay out of it. And this is why there's so much, how dare you even ask me how things are going? How dare you even question anything I do or anything I say or anything I believe? It's a private matter. It's a, it's a private affair. The world tells us it needs to be that way. We've believed this. We're individualistic in so many things. But the Lord tells us it's otherwise when it comes to the church. He unites us to Christ, the Spirit does, and to one another in Christ's body. He gives us gifts, and He tells us to watch out for one another, to help each other along. And so, if you neglect this, you do this to your own harm, and in some cases, ruin. It's not surprising when you see people who keep church life at arm's length, but call themselves a Christian, they often then wander off into horrible error and make a shipwreck of their faith. They've, they've divorced themselves from the body of Christ, and they're out from under, outside of the means that God has given for our benefit, for our upbuilding, for our encouragement. Right? To such people, I would ask, who, whose gifts are benefiting you? Right? Who's benefiting from your gifts? The church is established for your good, for your uplifting, your building up, your preservation to the end. So if you've kept to the periphery of church life, I encourage you and I plead with you to come closer, to come in. And to not neglect this vital aspect of the Christian life that is for your good, that God has given you. And I would ask, who are you looking out for? Who do you know well enough to be able to rebuke lovingly? Who knows you well enough that they might be able to know where you're weak and encourage you and pray for you and rebuke you if necessary? Who's gifts are you being encouraged by? Where are you exercising your gifts? Who are, to whom are you serving with your gifts? Who's receiving the benefit of those? 
Membership in the local church is basically us saying, this is the group that I am pilgriming through this life with. This is the group I'm accountable to. This is the group who knows me. This is the group who's going to rebuke me if I stray. And praise God, they will do that. It's a safeguard for us. And this is the group to whose, whose gifts I need and who I'm going to serve in return with the gifts that I have, such as they are, as weak as they might seem. And so I would just say, if you're not a member, I would just encourage you to talk to me or to one of the other elders about this. We'd love to have that conversation with you. And let us together be committed to one another's progress in the faith. Guarding against sin, whether it's ourselves tripping and stumbling, guarding against leading others into sin, rebuking those who do fall into sin, and then joyfully and quickly forgiving our repentant brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, your ways are so much wiser than ours. God, we thank you that you have given us one another. And Father, we, we are all so weak on our own. And so you've given us each other. You've given us gifts. You've given us your word. You've given us your spirit. And you've told us that we are to gather together and that your word is to be read, is to be preached, that we are to sing together, that we are to take the Lord's Supper, we are to baptize new believers in the faith. And Father, all of these things contribute to our, our growth and our strengthening. And I pray that we would not neglect these things. Father, we know we do this to our harm. I pray that you would give us love for one another such that we would be willing to be rebuked. That we'd be willing to have somebody ask us, test us. Father, may we be close to one another. I pray that we would understand the importance of each gift that you've given. Father, that whoever here is, is about encouragement would joyfully and happily exercise their gift. Lord, whatever our gifts are, may we be those who, who use them. And may we, we, may we not disparage any gift or unduly exalt others. Father, we need one another. We thank you again that you've given us each other. Thank you for the beauty and wisdom of your plan, the church. Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace. We're reminded again of how desperately we need it. May we be those who are quick to forgive others, who love to release people of any debt they've built up against us. Father, we pray that you would do good things in our hearts and in our church. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.